It's a common mistake. I don't want to make a common mistake with an uncommon <laughs> man. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, I'm joined by John Myers, a former consulting designers of more than 20 years experience, who's currently the chief design officer of a crypto exchange called Liquid. Yep. You can find him on johnmyers.com or at John Myers on Twitter. That's J-O-N-M-Y-E-R-S. Correct. John, it's been a minute. How are you? Um, doing really well. Just been busy. Um, doing a lot of design. So. We are on the rooftop near a busy street of a shisha bar and yeah. they've got some craft beers and other drinks. So if you happen to hear motorbike scooters, car engines in the background, my apologies, but that is tonight's scene. You're in the mix in Saigon, so worse, worse could happen. How long have you been in Saigon? Been in Saigon about eight years now. Um, first came here on a visa run eight years ago and just really liked the city. Where were you visa running from? Uh, I was living in Thailand and in southern Thailand and um, didn't know anything about Vietnam, to be honest, and just came here. It's a crazy, big, dirty city, and it kind of sparked my interest. And so I moved here a week later. <laughs> <laughs> so here, did you go back to Thailand and then back here? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I had some stuff in Thailand and... Um, just came here. I liked the economics of the place that I saw of what was happening. Uh, the youth culture, 70% of the country is under the age of 30. So I saw a lot of upside to being here and uh, startup scene was really happening. So that was really attractive. And um, it's been a great ride so far. I guess you're not from Columbus, Ohio. I was born in Columbus. You were born there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, so we're both Kind of in some way or another, Columbus. Well, you went to high school with my sister. Yes. For sure. <laughs> so, yeah. It's so strange. And we didn't know each other before I came here. Totally yeah, random. I met you. Tomo introduced us Yeah, uh, at some point. Yeah. So we have a common friend, Tomo, who introduced us and uh, the Columbus connection. So what's the journey? How do you get from Columbus to Thailand and then... Um, I, you know, throughout my 20s. So I'm, I'm an older dude. I've been at this for a while. Uh, 46. So I started in design, I guess, in my teens. You know, I always wanted to be a designer. Um, but more, you know, I always thought of design as more like art uh, when I was younger. Uh, but I was also really, really into business. And so I had a decent business acumen. And throughout my 20s, I really just kind of, you know, started a lot of businesses, failed at a lot of businesses, and eventually started to get traction. Um, as a practicing designer. And that just kind of took off. I started a business in 2006 called Do Media, uh, domedia.com. I had a co-founder there, uh, exited that personally in 2009. And, you know, throughout the years I've worked and consulted on a lot of different projects, uh, mainly in finance, but uh, in a lot of different verticals as well. Where were you during those uh, those times. Um, look, maybe Ge easier to say where I wasn't. Uh, 
I was all over the place. I was living in Argentina in Buenos Aires. Um, I was in Mexico for a brief while, stayed for quite a while in New York City um, uh, in my earlier uh, 20s and um, just was able to get uh, a book of business, I guess, or design built, you know, out there uh, where I got some attention. So what brought you then like eventually to Thailand? Um, I just wanted to be in Asia. I had studied Chinese when I was younger and studied Mandarin and, um, really liked being in Asia. That's where I saw the momentum and, um, just went there just on a whim. How long were you there? I think about a year or so. Okay. Maybe a little bit longer. I was bouncing around everywhere quite a bit. Were you in Bangkok or Chiang Mai or? Uh, Bangkok and then in Southern Thailand in Grabi, Alnong. And um, then I came here. And then throughout the eight years I've been in Saigon, I've also left and traveled around quite a bit. So I was in Dubai consulting a project there, um, but all over the place. On the internets, if you were to talk about digital nomads, yeah, Thailand comes up a lot, Vietnam a lot less often. But I mean, I'm, I've heard I've heard before that you had a lot to do with a lot of people who used to be considering Thailand to consider coming to Vietnam. Um, I got really lucky. I put out a blog post on Medium or Medium post, whatever, and uh, I just wrote about. My life here, I started talking about uh, why you should come to Saigon to bootstrap your startup. And that blew up on Hacker News. I think I got like 3 million views on that post. And so a lot of people just, um, it put Saigon on a lot of people's radar. And so, you know, I think that was part of it. And, you know, I think I'm, I'm a different type of digital nomad. I wouldn't consider myself a digital nomad at all now. But um, even when I was traveling around a lot more, I was much more interested in scalable startups versus building a lifestyle business. Uh, and so that's not to disparage those that choosing that. But for me, I think you might as well make as much impact out of your effort as possible. And so I just felt like the scalable startup route was more interesting for me personally. So I kind of gravitated to those kind of situations. Man, talking about disparaging. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't talk about disparaging. I think it's okay, man. Is it? Yeah. Man, I, there's. Well, I think a lot of people who who are mutual friends of us or I'm sure people that run in circles with you, they're doing things like affiliate marketing. I think a lot of people get out here and they don't really know what to expect. And so they're looking for something to do in order to stay. Right. So folks that maybe don't have a hard skill to fall back on, you know, some of these other things might require softer skills with a shorter learning curve. So I think people were just kind of scrambling to try to figure out what to do in order to stay. Um, but being a designer, I was always lucky. That was my fallback. So I never really was concerned about getting customers or, or 
making money because I had a pretty steady pipeline. So I think that that part's really important. Like if anybody's ever considering it, that's always one of, one of my first things is like learn a hard skill, learn programming, learn copywriting, design or whatever. And then while you're building your business, you at least have a marketable uh, in-demand skill uh, to fall back on. Like as as a freelancer or even yeah. getting employment at a company. Yeah, in, that's right. That's here right. in Vietnam or. Yeah. I think there's something unfair in the world where Americans can pretty much say, hey, you know, I think I'd like to try living in Vietnam. And then you can just do it. Yeah. But if you were Vietnamese and you said, hey, I think I just want to go try living in America. There's so many hurdles. Yeah, I agree. Right? I agree. Um, it's not fair. I agree. <laughs> not fair. It's a true thing that it's not fair. Yeah. I've always kind of wish that there's a global citizenship, like maybe even eradicate the concept of, of countries. But yeah. even if not that, if you could have some kind of. Actually, global... I, I worked on a project. Um, I worked and helped out with an ICO called SelfKey, which is all about self-sovereign identity. And that doesn't mean it's going to be globally recognized, but in order to onboard the next billion folks into the global financial system, people need some type of identity, right? And so the, what they call KYC, know your customer and AML, anti-money laundering uh, measures, which banks have to adhere to, people need to be able to prove who they are, right? So it's really hard to do that. So this project was focused on that and adjunct to that would, was to start to go down that path of more self-sovereign um, identity and identity management systems. But it's an extremely difficult topic. There's some progressive places like Estonia and things like that where they have like the uh, e-residency program. Um, but it's a long ways off. You know, it's a pretty old system. It's not that old, actually. It's only about 100 years old, the idea of a passport. Um, ironically, only 30% of Americans possess one. It's even worse, you know. They have this really powerful document, uh, which many people don't even. Well, you only exercise. need it if you're going to leave the country, though. Yeah, that's right. Why would you ever leave? <laughs> America itself is yeah. really large, so even to travel to other states could be a yeah. A and thing. I, I think it's tough for people. It's expensive. Uh, most people have to go back to a job, so it's it's easier said than done, for sure. This could be an interesting topic. Um, World on fire? Is that it? <laughs> yeah. It's just some stuff I was playing around with, with my blog and stuff like that, but mainly just talking about the global startup movement and and, and that sort of thing. I'm still quite interested in that. Yeah. Well, I, you may, you put together kind of a sizzle reel, kind of a yeah. demo. Yeah, reel. that's old school. That was like six years ago, man. Yeah. Six years. Yeah. Is six years yeah. old school? I don't know. I guess so. Yeah. Things change so fast. Um. I saw that as kind of this anti-corporate slavitude. Yeah. Part of that. Part of it was that. Like, yeah. You know. Yeah. I'd say my tune has changed a little bit. You know, I mean, I'm working with a company now. We have 350 people there. And uh, particularly working in crypto, I think sometimes being on a team is better. Depends on what your objective is. You know, like I want to build a massive company in crypto and financial services. 
And you're not going to do that in your spare bedroom, you know, uh, home office. You need a team and things to do it. And so uh, I'd say my perspective has broadened quite a bit on that since then. Hmm. So a bit, bit different, eh? Do they um, allow you a certain amount of flexibility in terms of location and hours or? Um, I mean, I guess if I want it, but I'm usually just, I choose to work a lot because uh, there's a lot of work to do. I guess I don't really think about it that much, to be honest. I mean, if I need to take personal time, I will. Um, but that's really not my top priority, I guess, right now. You know, I'm more focused on just building the company, growing the company and that kind of thing. So a bit bit different of a mindset, I guess. Um, this is maybe, this is an optional question to answer. Okay. But um, do they, uh, do you have any equity in the company? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That helps. Yeah. To be... Um, I think it helps to be a, I used to work at a, at a startup and yeah. I had stock options and yeah. it made me, uh, I drank the Kool-Aid. I mean, yeah. I, I got really into it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it helps. Um, but that's not the only reason why I'm there. I just honestly, um, I mean, all my life I've worked for myself and I'm actually really enjoying having a team and, you know, helping run design for the company. So it's been really fun. There was an article, a blog, uh, a blog post I read many years ago. Yeah, circa two thousand and four, probably. Maybe maybe it was a little bit later. Maybe two thousand five or six. Uh, possibly by Paul Graham, who talked about abstraction layers at companies. Mm-hmm. That's like the administrative staff that makes sure that you have a lamp on your desk or make sure that the electricity bill gets paid sure. so that you don't have to worry about any of that stuff and you can just focus on what you're good at. Yeah. And, um, at a good company, I would, I would guess most good companies have great abstraction layers so that you can actually just enjoy to do your job and not have yeah. to mess around with other stuff. I mean, we definitely have uh, a lot of layers of abstraction. Um, but, you know, I would say overall, yeah. I mean, it just depends. Like those are, it's a different set of problems when you hit a, when you're trying to achieve a different type of scale in your business, you know? So we're at a scale point now where, you know, you need those types of abstraction layers in place in order to, uh, in, in order to grow. So we're really focused on growth at the moment. Introduce us a little bit about the liquid trading platform. Sure. Um, we are headquartered in Japan. Uh, we've got uh, an office here in Saigon of about 110, 120 people. And we primarily cater to professional traders with a set of, uh, I guess, products, you know, that, that cater to that type of person. So uh, leverage products for margin, 25x leverage, uh, Bitcoin C, uh, CFDs at 100x leverage stuff like that. So it's not really somebody for somebody who wants to invest in Bitcoin. It's more for professional traders uh, who want to trade against the market. I don't know a lot about 
that world. So yeah. leveraging means that you can borrow capital to pretty invest, much basically. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you have to have a certain amount of margin coverage to take a position on whether you think it, the price is going to go up or down. Right. So if you think it's going to go, go down, that's a hedge. Yeah. And yeah. And there's all, I mean, there's lots of different types of trading strategies, but yeah. All right. Yeah. So Liquid is a is a trading platform. We're a uh, cryptocurrency exchange where people do trade uh, in crypto assets. Do you carry all crypto assets or what kind of subset do you guys focus uh, on? It's pretty edited. I mean, our top trading product is Bitcoin, Japanese yen. And so we offer fiat or government issued currency options like Japanese yen or U.S. dollar, uh, Indonesian rupiah, uh, Filipino peso, like those types of uh, fiat currencies. And we offer about 100 different crypto assets on there for trading. Um, but I would say primarily the ones that are traded in are Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple. Our, our own token is called the cash token, Q-A-S-H. And so uh, people can use that uh, to pay their trading fees and that kind of stuff as well. In a system like what you guys have going on, if I'm making, if I'm making trades, does uh, can I hold my assets in your token? Yeah. In like, yeah. So we have some pretty sophisticated technologies, which is too geeky to really get into here, but. Um, the long and the short of it is that we store people's crypto assets in a way that's very secure um, called cold storage, where it makes it much more immune to hacking and stuff like that. Um, so people's funds are pretty safe there. It's safer than probably holding them yourself, to be honest. So uh, a lot of people do keep assets on the exchange. I uh, was given a Bitcoin many years ago. Yeah. And I... And it was on a hard drive and I dropped the hard drive. Oh, shoot. And uh, at the time it was worth like $100. So I didn't really care. Yeah. But then as the price increased, I was like, maybe is there any way to uh, save this data? Yeah. Um, and at the time I was like, wow, like your exposure just from negligence. Like if you have a paper wallet, what if it catches fire? I mean, yeah. you put it in a safety deposit box yeah. you know like how do you secure your so yeah i mean these are the kind of problems we're working on so i first got into crypto in 2011 and um one of the things that really drew me to crypto was the fact that it's a usability nightmare and so as a designer being able to attack all these really difficult problems and trying to humanize something that really wasn't made to be read by humans, you know? So if you look at uh, the value of a Bitcoin, right? It goes down to 18 decimal places. That's really not a human-friendly number, but it's a very machine-friendly number. And so there's a lot of opportunities to make Bitcoin more usable and other crypto assets as well uh, through UX, through UI, and that kind of thing. So um, I get to work on it all day long, which is great. I have a friend in Tokyo who I keep trying to introduce you to. Yeah. And next time you go there, uh, let's Absolutely. make it happen. Absolutely. He's been he's been in it in the game, the crypto game for a long time. Yeah. And so I've been on the sidelines for most of this time. Like I keep 
checking in with him, seeing what's, what it, what's going on with it. Yeah. But the usability of it, I think there's kind of like a black box technical hurdle that is keeping it from being mainstream. I think so. And I think, I, I think most of us that come from the world of Western financial services, there's really not a strong motivating force that's pushing you in that direction. In general, most people have access to decent financial services. So why would you use Bitcoin to pay for something and you got to sit around and wait for it to resolve when you can just run a Visa or MasterCard, right? So there's a lot of different things that need to be overcome from that perspective. Uh, and it's probably not even the right utilitarian case for Bitcoin anyways, right? It's a different use case. And um, yeah, I mean, I think personally, I think we're five, 10 years out from real mainstream adoption. Um, but I think we're seeing lots and lots of traction, but personally, my game's a very long game in the space. I'm patient. It's going to take a while, but there could be a killer app that just creates a massive, a massive amount of, uh, inertia, but it could be a while too. You know, that's just how technology disruption works. I think. If I was to ask you to share some design gems with yeah. people out there who want to be better designers or yeah. want, you know, what would you share with them um stop looking in the same place as everyone else it's not to say don't go to those places but i think most designers lean on going to dribble going to behance going to whatever and it's just a way to turn their brain off and i think if most i i, I see what designers on our design team now most people can't focus there are people that can't sit down for five minutes straight and focus on one task for five minutes. And so I would say number one is don't go to the same places for everyone else. And don't be that literal about your, your design inspiration in your process. And number two is learn how to focus, turn off Facebook and all that other crap, uh, turn off all the distractions and sit down and really be in the moment and in the task because design is kind of a meditation on the user experience and the product. And if you're not meditating on that and you're really not thinking it through, how in the heck can you deliver something that's that usable or useful? And so I, I see that problem with a lot of designers. And I think it's a big problem, actually. I suffer from that problem. Yeah, I am constantly being distracted and I feel my productivity is quite yeah. uh, shameful. I think it's common. Um, we've never lived in a moment in time where there's never, where there has been so many cognitive demands, right? So if you think about your brain as like an internet connection, right? You only have so much bandwidth. And so the more you let these forces kind of in and interrupt you and all this, then that just chips away at your bandwidth, right? And so you really have to be vigilant about protecting your bandwidth. And so for me, it's always about the the ritual and the habits and those kind of things. And you can, if you go in, it's just like going to the to the gym or something. You know, for your New Year's Day and you're running into the gym, you're like, all right, I'm going to crush it, whatever. And then most people will quit like a week after, right? So it's really about just changing the algorithm just a little bit and kind of nudging yourself forward versus trying to do everything at once. But I think like just creating a few rituals and habits that kind of push you in that direction 
then you can keep updating the algorithm. But if you just try to do everything at once, like I'm shutting everything out, it's not going to work. Right. Well, so what are your rituals and habits? Um, I usually start the day every morning with a deep information bath. So listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, track like 500 different news sources. Um, and the way I'm processing news is I try to triangulate things as much as possible. So I look at everything very skeptically and then try to think about like, you know, if I see a problem, I might try and think, well, how would I fix that? <laughs> yes. Again, we're at a, we're at a seashore bar. Can I hit this? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Go for it, man. What kind of flavor do we got going on here? Uh, that is banana coconut. Banana coconut. <laughs> so I wouldn't recommend smoking shisha, but it is a way for me to slow down, right? Because all like all you're talking about like habits and rituals, right? So this would be a bad habit. However, I am in a daily situation where I have to be like on constantly, right? So it forces me to slow down. I like those things. You've been smoking shisha regularly for a long time, as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, off and on. I don't do it like every day. A um, couple times a week or something. Yeah, but not like every day. But um, so far, so good. Like health checks are fine, knock on wood and stuff like that. So. There was a study that, I don't know, was it about shisha or vaping? I think it was about shisha that said uh, X number of hours of shisha was equivalent to... I think I saw that one too. Yeah. So I do, a, I do I am concerned about health. Maybe not as concerned as I should be. Otherwise, I wouldn't do shisha at all, right? But um, I go to Bumagrad Hospital and get my lungs and heart and all that stuff checked. Um, and so far, so good, actually. So, like, guys my age are passing out on the treadmill with the electrodes attached to them. So far, so good. I'm holding up all right. Do you exercise regularly? Yeah. Swim every day. and Or not every day. Try to swim every day doesn't work out that way all the time but try to is that beneficial for your state of mind or your productivity yeah i think uh exercise is really important you know really important so yeah i have to say i'm quite out of any kind of beneficial routine yeah whether it's a meditative practice whether it's exercise there's things that i used to do daily and um they've all gone they all went out the window when I like started my own company. Yeah, it's and tough. It's I it's I there's an irony there. Yeah. Because these things would demonstrably benefit me. Yeah. But when I'm like, "Oh, I could go climbing tonight or maybe I'll do one more hour of work." Yeah. And it's in a way seductive. You're like, ah, "I'm kind of tired." So I don't really want to go climbing, though. If I was going climbing more often, I would be less tired. Yeah, it's possible. Eh? I think like just having any daily routine, though, you can just program it small. So like I've lost, I lost 20 pounds in the last two months. 20 pounds? 20 pounds, 10 kilos. Were you like? I was gaining weight and I just was getting concerned about it. I did three things. So one is I just bought a scale. Uh, Xiaomi scale. I started weighing in consistently and tracking with the app. And then the second one is I stopped eating breakfast. Mm. 
breakfast it was kind of boring. And so Monday through Friday, I only eat at 12 and 5 p.m. That's it. Uh, lunch and dinner. And then I had a delivery service come in for uh, keto meals. They deliver the meals like that. And that's it. I would just eat whatever I want on the weekend. And it started to come off and I was just moving around more. But I'm still not lifting weights and stuff the way I wanted used to. But, you know, I started to get the result. I started tracking it on the uh, Apple Watch. So then I started drinking more water as well. So three liters of water a day. And I just track every time I'm drinking water. That's about it, actually. That's about it. But it started to come off pretty fast. But I was just getting, uh, you know, especially at my age, I don't want to be like trying to fight it off, you know. Like How old are you now? 46. So I want to make sure I'm just doing the right things like that. I want to get a little bit back to this concept of getting less distracted. Yeah, Because sure. it's such a, it's, it continues to be a, a huge challenge for me. Yeah. So if I can like steal something from well, you. Well, I think, I mean, I think, uh, you know, like I was saying with our designers in the company, even it was our number one battle. And the thing that I don't want to do is police everybody. I don't want to be a police officer. You know, I can look at the pixels and I can be like distracted work. I don't have to hover over people. I can just look at the finished product. Right. Mm. And so if you want to do the best work in your life, it requires deep focus. That's just the bottom line. And so for me, I would just, I was never satisfied with the final result because if I'm working distracted, like I'll just put something up and I'm like, I can do way better than this if I'm focused. Like, Is there any uh, trick for? Um, I would say start smaller. I don't know if you, have you heard of the Pomodoro technique? Yeah. So you could start with smaller Pomodoros that are just eight minutes where you just block out everything. So for the next eight minutes, I'm going to only yeah. do this task. Yeah. And then you can dial it up. Uh, I don't usually work a Pomodoro any longer than like 40 minutes because I want to be standing up. I don't want to be just seated in that position for too long. It's bad for your body. Um, but I'm up to like a 40 minute Pomodoro pretty consistently now. And I think the other thing too, is like when you sit down in the chair, sit down with a work plan, you should know exactly what you're going to be doing and why. And um, I think a lot of times, especially designers, they'll jump right into like high fidelity, for example. And so if they've done the proper, <laughs> excuse me, prep work, then, you know, they should, I think designers should be able to write their own copy, do their own discovery, be able to perform a lot of their own UX. And so if you sit down with a work plan, it's really, and it's really clear what you're doing you should be able to get into some kind of flow state. And so for me, you just have to kind of know yourself like over time, like I know for myself personally, what it takes to achieve flow state. And flow state for me is there's nothing greater as a designer. If you're working in flow state and you're just going and, you know, flow state means you're working so hard, you don't even realize you're working and the time just goes away. Uh, those are some of the best days. I, I love those days, you know, where you're just in the flow then the other thing too is if you're not in flow state, uh, sometimes you have to just walk away, just take a breath, step back, all go and go on a walk, do something uh, to clear my head and start to ask, well, you know, why is this not clicking? Am I distracted? Is the mission unclear? Is the objective unclear? Uh, but it all comes down to lack of clarity. If you're really clear in your head about what you're doing and why then it's easier to get to flow state. 
I oftentimes get a problem where I'm like, okay, here's something I have to get done today. Yeah. And I sit down to start doing it. But I'll forget what I was supposed to be doing. Yeah. You know? And most of the time that happens with like, um, if, if in, in my case, it'd be Facebook. Yeah. I could imagine it happening with Instagram or Twitter as well. Yeah. It was like, I have to go here to find this thing. Yeah. Whatever that thing is. Right. Yeah. Uh, but then once you get there, there's all these other things that are, you know, trying yeah. to grab your attention. And before you know it, you're off track. Yeah. I don't. So on my work machine, I don't fire up Facebook at all. I never surf. Uh, I never go on there on my work machine just because I want it to be dedicated for work. Uh, in that case, I might go on my phone if I really feel I need to to get on there or send somebody a message or something like that. But otherwise, it's off limits. Um, but the more you can, I don't know if you use Rescue Time. Do you know that one? I don't know that. It's a cool app. So I, I monitor my my time and productivity that way. And it's just more of a personal thing where I'm like, I want to make sure that I'm focused on the tasks at hand versus um, chasing around stuff. You know? What do you like most about living in Vietnam? Um, I like the people a lot. Uh, I like the chaos of the city. Um, it's an orderly chaos. Um, I like the upward look at the future, you know, it's really positive overall. Um, I think the things I find frustrating would be lack of awareness of personal space, stuff like that can really get under my skin, but I don't know. I just look at the trade-off. Every place is going to have its ups and, you know, good, good stuff and bad stuff, you know? How long do you see yourself staying here? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. No. Yeah. No real plans. No. I keep like looking to go buy property, looking at property here. And that, yeah. And then I'm like, nah, I don't know. We'll see. If you were to buy property, would it be like an apartment unit or would it be land? Um, I've considered both. I think when I retire, if I ever fully retire, I'd like to buy land and build up my own complex of like service rentals and have co-working and that kind of thing and just retire and advise and invest in startups, like that kind of thing. But that sounds idealistic. It's a little ways off. Yeah. Still, still got a little time to go on my, you know, I've been recently for the last several years, but especially in the last six months, splitting my time between Japan and Vietnam. Sure. And the contrast between the relative calmness of Japan yeah. and then the chaos of Saigon. Yeah. Uh, up until this trip, I was finding that I'm getting a lot of anxiety from the chaos. Yeah. Uh, though somehow this trip, um, it's way better. Oh, cool. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why. Yeah. I, I, I have inflection points of aggravation where I have to just uh, slow down. There's nothing I can do about it. Like I find getting into elevators sometimes being stressful. Uh, I find like the lighting situations, you know, the way they design lighting and buildings really bothers me. So I'm really sensitive to that. Um, I find some of the mannerisms when you go to restaurants and the tension to be aggravating, but 
again, it's just a young country. People are figuring it out. So I kind of let it slide. What's your favorite Vietnamese food? Bunseo. Uh-huh. It's like a, was it the coconut pancake thing or whatever? Yeah. It's cool. <laughs> In your current situation. Sure. At work, that is. You're, I assume, managing like everybody at, at the company who's involved with anything creative, anything yeah. user experience, all those fields, right? Yeah. Um, how much design do you do and how much conducting do you do? Um, I still do. I'm probably in sketch 20 to 30 hours a week. So I still, especially for the heavy, heavy lifting stuff, uh, designing dashboards, that kind of stuff. I'm still pretty hands-on, uh, polishing the design system or introducing new components into the design system. I'm very hands-on, very hands-on with the product team and coming up with new products and features. Uh, but still pretty heavy handed. What are the best things to do f for, um, entertainment here in Saigon entertainment? Uh, shisha, <laughs> I like shisha. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a good restaurant scene here. I like the bars and restaurants around. Um, you know, I mean, like when tourists come here, or friends come here traveling. I don't really know. Like, I'm not really into like seeing sites and like that kind of thing. I'm more like cafes, bars, restaurants. Um, there's a you know, there's like a decent art scene. It's a little scrappy. Um, there's always a meetup every single night. If you want to go to some tech related meetup or whatever, it's a great opportunity to network with people, but I don't really seek to network, you know, it just kind of happens naturally. But, um, there's a lot of like-minded people around. So I like that a lot. In terms of Saigon itself or the very Close areas. Yeah. I mean, if you're a tourist, there's the War Museum. Yeah. There's uh, f formerly, formerly called the American War Crime Museum. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And there's the Coochie Tunnels. Yeah. And that's kind of it, right? Yeah. In terms of uh, major tourist destinations. Yeah. I've, I'm the same. When I actually, when I visit another city, yeah. the main thing I want to do is find like where's the best coffee yeah same, same. and uh when people come here i also tend to bring them to restaurants and cafes yeah yeah i like to get to know local people see what they're working on uh really involved with uh local entrepreneurs and the startup scene still so you know i want to know what people are doing and see if i can be useful in any way what are people doing oh boy you name it um Overall, just a general swoop, I, uh, I would say the sophistication of the types of businesses that I'm seeing are improved quite a bit. So, you know, before when I got here, it was a lot of B2C social type of startups. I'm seeing more B2B stuff. I'm seeing stuff that's uh, a bit more sophisticated uh, than five, eight years ago when I was here. So overall... Uh, quite improved. Have you noticed cost of living increasing? Um, I think so a little bit. Yeah. 
I think so. But not that much, really, when I first got here. If you were to rewrite your um, article about coming here to do a startup yeah. on, that you mentioned earlier, would you change anything about the article? Um, no, not that much, to be honest. I think that lifestyle is still here, but I'm not bootstrapping anything either. Uh-huh. So it's a different mindset, I think. Different, different way of thinking about it. I know a lot of young people that are still bootstrapping stuff that seem to get along fine. Yeah. One thing that my podcast has that um, Joe Rogan's doesn't is long, awkward pauses. <laughs> nice. That I'm, you know. Yeah. I'll cut it in. I'll cut them out, I think. I kind of end up with these situations where I'm like, okay, that got to like the end of its, uh, that thought got to yeah. the end of its thing. And then like, I don't actually have a rebuttal to it. Yeah. A rebuttal or a question lined up to, That's all right. to push it along. Let's talk about design process. Let's do it. Okay. So I'll, this might be interesting for other people out there. So I can talk about my design process. I think you can apply this to a lot of different stuff and you could make it your own. And so one of the things I love about doing design, right, is I like the fact that, uh, you know, in design, right, you are, as a designer, you're a servant. So you're not a God, you're a servant, right? And you're serving others. And the way that you serve others is by really understanding them in the context for which you're delivering a solution, right? So the first pillar of how I approach design is based on empathy. I think a lot of people do that, you know, and approach it that way. And as a designer, when you're thinking about empathy, the closer you can get to the situation and really build these empathic profiles of those whom you are serving will make you a more powerful designer and a better designer. And so I really think about that part a lot. Um, second piece to that is utility. And so what you're doing has to be really useful in some way. So there has to be some type of utilitarian value delivered or whatever, based on your empathic understandings of these individuals whom you are serving. So I think about those two things quite a bit. The third piece of the process is aesthetics. And so aesthetics can be, you know, how it looks. It's also about how it works. It's all those other elements that kind of come together based on the utilitarian objectives and empathic understandings of those whom you are serving. And then the final piece is, or sorry, uh, value. So you have to be able to deliver something that actually creates value for these individuals. And then you have to be able to generate value as a business. Otherwise, you're out of business. And so I think about those four things quite a bit in the design process I wouldn't necessarily go out and turn it into a formal thing, you know, with other stakeholders, but that's kind of what's ticking in my brain when I'm tackling a design problem. It's those four things. How do you become empathetic towards your user? Um, really depends on the types of individuals, the situation, but I think just getting as close to them as possible in the context uh, as well helps a lot. Um, do a lot of focus groups. I do a lot of field work, um, user surveys, 
a lot of uh, self-guided research and discovery and that kind of stuff. Um, but it really depends on the nature of the problem you're attacking, I think. So it really depends. Are there like problems that are easier to solve and ones that are harder to solve? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're designing a restaurant website, it's going to be a little different than, uh, like I did work for DNA profiling. That's a little bit different, uh, of a situation, you know, where people were looking for an STR, uploading an STR profile and looking for an autosomal DNA match. Is that like for criminal stuff or? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, for a cybersecurity scenario. So, yeah. So it just depends on what the context is. And so like in the context that I just mentioned, you don't want somebody to be falsely accused as well. So you have all these different constraints you have to think about all the time. Just depends on what the situation is. You've been using uh, Sketch yeah. as a tool yeah. a lot. What do you like about Sketch? Um, it's just fast. I don't really have to think about it. I don't even use, I don't use any interface elements at all. I just use Sketch Runner and execute commands. So I've just got everything down to a, a system. What's Sketch Runner? Sketch Runner is a plugin. It's kind of like Alfred, if you know Alfred on Mac. Oh. It's like a quick way to just execute keyboard commands. So I can move really fast in it. That means like you're not looking for the icon and clicking on the yeah, icon. So I, that tool. I don't use any icons in the uh, layout space at all. I just generate everything through a keyboard command. Do you customize that yourself or um, got presets that it's you got presets. have to learn? Yeah, you, it's got presets and uh, most of the other designers in the team use it. I don't want people hunting and pecking around in menus and that they should be able to know the shortcuts. Mm. How many shortcuts do you have to memorize? Sketch Runner allows you to cheat because you can just, whatever the the command is, you can just start with the letters and it'll just appear in like a drop down. So you don't really have to know them all by heart. It's like auto-completing in a yeah, exactly. code editor. Yeah. You've made a video game before. Yeah. 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 I used to be a game I, designer too. That's cool, man. <laughs> awesome, man. But uh, you know, how did you get into doing... Games. chasing the app or the uh, iPhone gold rush. At that time, there was like 5,000 apps in the app store. And we just released a game and um, we made our money back. And then I got out. It was like going to the casino ahead and you're like, you know what? I'm out. But uh, Jesse Shell's book, Art of Game Design, really helped a lot. Book of Lenses, I think that was as well. So we used that. I love video playing video games, but I don't it's just a really labor and capital intensive business now. So I just, uh, my skills are better used elsewhere. This uh, idea of gold rushes is interesting and I think worth exploring. Every so often you get a new, a new platform, a new technology. So the app store, yeah. .bomb.com, yeah. crypto. Yeah. These things come, come up and then everybody's like, also new platforms, right? So like Fortnite, for example, just a different type of approach to the platform uh, has allowed for explosive growth. Uh, they had some incredible growth loops baked into that product, uh, which is now being emulated in other, from other players in the industry, right? So like they, Fortnite really unlocked the multi-platform approach uh, that allowed them to achieve incredible scale. You mean like that the game is on... Uh, PC and it's on mobile. Yeah. Is that what you mean by multiple yeah, platforms? Yeah, everyone can play at the same time kind of thing. So 
one of the first like that. So I think that was a pretty radical uh, innovation. So about um, about these uh, gold rushes, is it worthwhile to say, hey, here's a gold rush situation and I'm going to hop on that mm-hmm. and I'm going to capitalize on that? Or can you provide, can you succeed at all these design pillars you've mentioned mm-hmm. and can you provide value by just going to totally established? I think it really depends, you know, I mean, I think if in anything, sometimes people get lucky if they're just chasing the paper, but I think just paper chasing is probably not a great idea. <laughs> I think you have to really figure out some kind of hook or be useful or have something you know, sometimes the right place, right time is definitely necessary, but there's a lot of other factors I think that go into success like that. So, how you been? Like, you know, spiritually, <laughs> spiritually. How you feeling? Actually, really positive. Really positive. Good work life balance. Uh, awesome friend network. Um, playing music every now and then. Playing music. Just uh, in my house, like whatever. Like you put a CD in and you listen to no, it? No, no. Just, uh, I guess, playing around in Ableton and just okay. that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like writing music or? Yeah, trying to. I suck at it, but <laughs> trying to. I love electronic music, so just playing around with that stuff. I see you um, make posts on the internet about various festivals that you yeah try yeah. to attend. Like a lot of progressive house music, trance music, stuff like that. I love it. It's fun. Good change of pace. Good to work too. And I'd like to talk a little bit about travel. Sure. Because uh, you've done a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, why did you go to like Thailand this weekend? I uh, just hang out with friends. Just got friends scattered everywhere and they all happened to be there. So it was like, that'd be fun to go see them. That's it. Do you still um, hang out with the DC? Yeah. What's that all about? DC Dynamite Circle is a location independent entrepreneur community. About 1,500 people. First got in there, I guess, or it sounds like a cult. It's just a forum, really. But it's around, uh, I got involved around seven years ago. And uh, we all just stay in touch, you know. So, like any city you go to, there's people in the group there. So it's pretty fun. Any city? Yeah. I'd, well, I'd say most major metropolitan cities, people are scattered around. But yeah. Like here the, here in Saigon, there's some, Bangkok, Chiang Mai, Manila, that kind of thing. People yeah. in the States? Yeah. Yeah. Austin, New York, LA. Yeah. Miami. Do you mostly like socialize or is there kind of a career uh, or monetary benefit to being involved with them? There can be. I, people do business together. Uh, I think most people just want to share information, you know, about this is working for me, this isn't working for me, like that kind of thing. One thing I've found in the past with most, many online tools, whether you're trying to do project management with something like Trello, yeah, or if you're you have a, some kind of forum in your, uh, or a Facebook group and you're trying to have a vital 
discussion. You're trying to kind of create a community and have vital discussions. In my experience, most of the time, these things lose oomph. Yeah, they do. The DC has not, but I would say most do. Yeah. I think the communities there, the community there is really engaged. Uh, But yeah, that's my experience as well. Do you have any ideas about like creating uh, engagement in communities? Be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not sure. I think it goes in waves, you know, depends on like where people are at in the journey as well. Uh, what kind of information they're looking for. Like I don't have as much motivation to be involved cause I have a big friend network here, but maybe when, if I was just starting out looking to make friends, I might be more engaged. Uh, so I think it ebbs and flows. I've also, in the past, I've noticed that if you have one person who is like a cheerleader yeah, and they, they're always there, they're always moderating, they're always pushing people yeah, that you can get vitality. But if that person gets tired of doing that and nobody else steps up, that that's kind of it. Yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate. Yeah, I think so as well. I have a couple Facebook groups and when I first started them, I was uh motivated yeah 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 you know and uh it's tiring after a while the other thing i found is that the bigger the groups get the less vital they get yeah well like in terms of engage like post engagements when uh my facebook group was 100 people it had as much or maybe even significantly more engagement than when it had a thousand people yeah i think so i think that's accurate do you have any um theories on that um i think the larger it is the more anonymous people become um which is not useful for the quality of decorum on the site you know it but then there's other communities where there's a certain tone set like i would say overall with the scale and size of medium.com there's a pretty good sense of decorum that's on that site for whatever reason I don't know why, but um, there's a lot of SEO-ish kind of content and crap on there, but it kind of gets buried. And I'd say like overall for something of that size, for whatever reason, there's been a good tone set and it's above average. You share a lot of Medium articles. Yeah. And uh, I try clicking on them a lot. Yeah, you have to pay. And uh, most of the, there it says like, you've, you've read too much this month. Like oh, yeah. You know, you've seen more than five articles and uh, if you'd like to see more, you need to get a membership. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've never... When I f- first checked out Medium years ago, it was yeah completely free. Yeah. Um, it's natural for the things to, you know, first you get the users, then you yeah try to monetize them, but... I don't mind paying. I pay five, five bucks. Five bucks a month? Yeah. Yeah, I get my money's worth. Do you, um, do you like watch Netflix? Um, sometimes, yeah, but it's just a pain to dig through all the crap on there. Oh. So for you, you get more value out of something like Medium. Yeah, I mean, I just am more of a reader, but, uh, I mean, I have Netflix, but, uh, I watch some stuff on there, but I would say for me personally, 95% of it's not that interesting. Every now and then there's something on there that I really like, but yeah. 
would that, would that be like original content or um like movies that would uh, some of the more original stuff I like on there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you go to the movie theater here in Vietnam? Yeah, a little bit. Um, we saw Endgame here. That was good. We saw like all the Marvel or DC stuff here. I used to go to the theater a lot when I lived in New York for more independent stuff, but it's really not an option here. Right. So theaters in Vietnam are really nice in general, I'd yeah. say. And the popcorn quality is quite good. Yeah. Uh, but everything's a like commercial blockbuster kind of thing. There's no art house scene. No, no. I'd say in general in Asia. Yeah. Like in general. John, thanks for meeting me tonight. All right. And uh, talking about design. Sure. Appreciate it. Again, if you'd like to follow John Meyer, you can find him on Twitter. Yeah. J-O-N-M-Y-E-R-S. Yeah. And also johnmyers.com. Yeah. That's about uh, it. The liquid, uh, is the liquid.com or what is the Liquid.com. Yeah. Come trade with us. Great. Thanks, yeah. Thank All right. you very much. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Bye.